All right, well, hey, everyone. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all, uh, whoever is watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call interview series. Um, as always, I'm Will Driscoll, the executive director here at the Hall of Fame, continuing to hope that everyone is staying safe, staying healthy, and uh, hopefully we're all doing our part to get past this pandemic. A little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, so knock on wood, let's hope it stays that way. Um, 2020, I know we talked about it a lot last year doing all of these Hall Call interviews. Uh, it was supposed to be an Olympic year. Um, but as with pretty much everything that went on last year was supposed to go on, it was postponed. Um, the Summer Olympics in Tokyo are hopeful that they'll happen this summer. Um, so we're hoping that that will happen and we'll see what happens with that. But the reason why I bring up the Olympics is our guest today is no stranger to the preparation and commitment that goes into training for what is the premier event for many sports across the globe. Lindsay Shoup, as you can see on your screen, is a Charlottesville native, a University of Virginia alumnus, and uh, is a self-described lifelong athlete. Uh, but the sport that gave her her greatest success, she didn't even pick up until her junior year of college. Uh, but six years and seven months after that point, she was standing atop uh, a medal podium as an Olympic gold medalist rower at the Beijing Summer Olympics. Uh, she has now detailed her entire journey in a new book titled Better Great Than Never. And we are thrilled today to be joined by Lindsay to talk about the book, talk about the journey and uh, anything else that comes up in conversation. So Lindsay, thank you for taking the time out today. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation and fabulous introduction. It's <laughs> well, well, listen, it's, the intros are easy because you guys give me all, all the, uh, the ammo for the intros. <laughs> but uh, obviously if you're following along on Facebook Live, if you have a question, you want to get it to Lindsay, just please feel free to put it up on the stream and I'll, I'll do my best to get it over to her. But uh, let's, um, let's first start with this question. In 2008, Lindsay Shoup, the Olympian, preparing for the Olympics, if this situation was happening then, how does your preparation change? What does that do to your mindset if you can even place yourself in this type of situation? Yeah, it's actually funny because only in the last two days I've thought about this, but there was a moment back in 2008 when someone actually, I don't know if they were joking or they were just messing with us, but there was this rumor that we were going to boycott the games, you know, and I just remember as soon as I heard that I had that moment of like, no, that would never happen. It had never crossed my mind, despite the fact that, you know, in 80 and 84, there were, you know, back and forth boycotts between, you know, the Eastern Bloc and the United States, you know, so it was possible that something like that could happen, you know, but in all of the preparation that my teammates and I did, it never thought to me that the games wouldn't happen. So the way that I know that I felt, it was heartbreaking in that moment of like complete disbelief. And that was just for a, a hint of maybe this won't happen. So the fact that it's very real today, you know, that it actually could, let alone the fact that it was, you know, postponed last year, I can only imagine what that would feel like. I know the well, way that I felt then, and it was such a small chance that it could happen, you know. Well, and, and I'll, I'll kind of follow up with this too. You, you're very detailed uh, in your book, Better Great Than Never, about the journey. I mean, it, it, the, the, vivid, the vividness in which you're able to describe pretty much everything, it, it, I think just kind of goes to, um, you know, how you prepared for uh, anything that you did. And you just always kept notes as if to kind of always go back to those. But looking at that, um, you know, how, how would a, how would this situation translate to an, an, an Olympian like yourself, where you're not the NBA player who gets to stay in, you know, the, the top notch accommodations? When, when you describe the training that you had going into the U.S. rowing national team, I mean, give us a little bit of insight into that. It is not glamorous at all. It's, it is not glamorous. I mean, we used to wear stocking caps when we would be on the rowing machines because it was so cold because the facilities were very minimum. 
you know, it, most sports, it's the United States. So if a sport has money, it's because of sponsorships, not anything else. And because of the nature of rowing and the vast majority of sports, let alone Olympic sports, the team constantly is in flux. So you can't say, okay, this, like for instance, little known fact, the United States women's eight that I was part of in 2005, six, seven, eight, nine, we actually started in 2006, an 11 year streak of winning. So every world championships and every Olympic games from 2006 to 2016, the U.S. women's eight won. The athletes rotated over that span of time. Some were the same for parts of it. So in theory, you can't sponsor one individual athlete. It wouldn't be right. I mean, moral compass aside, mm -hmm. you know, it, but it would be, okay, sponsor that boat. Well, what if the boat doesn't win the next year? It would all be retroactive. So, you know, for us coming out of college at the time too, minimal resources you know i got three pieces of gear you know at the university of virginia <laughs> and it wasn't about the stuff ever then and so now you know we're starting to see this increase in this stuff so it's almost like you go to the national team it's a little step down <laughs> it for uh one of our coaches actually said at one point she said you know it's not about the money it's about something more you know there are e much easier ways to make money than going to the Olympic games, if that's what it's about for you, you know? Yeah. Training full-time as a, as an Olympic potential Olympic rower, also working a part-time job where you can't give them a, a set schedule each week, you know, yeah. not knowing where your next meal is coming from it. It's, I, I think a lot of people sometimes get lost in the fact that yes, basketball and football, there's a reason why they're called revenue generators at colleges and the rest of them are kind of lumped into the Olympic sports. Um, and it, it really is for love of that sport that you're, that you're competing. Yeah. And all the benefits that you get from being a part of that sport, particularly when you're doing it right, when you're addressing the behavior and developing people and becoming a better person. And that, that's a big theme in the book is how can I get a little better today at being me? And when you really simplify so much, you know, as you say, you know, not, not even be able to you know, I'm ordering water by default because it's the free thing, right? You never even think, like, I'm going to order a drink because what, you're going to spend another dollar or two. Well, if you don't have the extra dollar or two to spend, you're going to choose water and the cheapest thing on the menu. That was a reality. That's what we did if we ever went out to eat, you know? Um, and so it, it kind of forces you in a way to go, what really matters? What do I actually need? You know, and that is actually a principle that I've carried to my life to this day. Like what actually matters? What do I really need? And it's far less than what most of us think. It's it's a great thing for people to realize, and you know, we even in the professional world, there are needs and wants. What do you need to do versus what do you want to do? Um, and you know, kind of getting into the book now, as I mentioned, it's a very vivid description, pretty much from your high school time all the way through the the uh, finally standing atop that medal podium in Beijing. Describe Lindsay Shoup in high school. <laughs> This was <laughs> I was gonna say, like you, you almost, you were almost <laughs> uncomfortable in your own skin from from yeah. reading the book. Yeah, you know, I was, I was awkward and self conscious. I was lanky. I was tall. I was taller than, you know, basically everybody out there. Most of my friends were shorter, you know, so I slumped. You know, my my sleeves were too short for my arms. I I wore boys' shoes for most of the time because you know Toms didn't exist until the last decade or so, and so women's shoes in a size twelve literally did not exist for me. You know, so I wore a lot of boys shoes. Shoot to this day, I now wear men's, you know, running shoes simply because I need the size. But you don't have like, growing up, you know, I had coaches that were um, tall, tall, strong, female role models. And they were also positive. And so those were, but there were only a few of those. Um, 
my brother and I were just talking the other day about a couple of movies that came out when we were, you know, mid teenagers. And I remember watching a movie called Little Giants and there was like a female character in there. And I thought, wow. Icebox. Okay. Yeah, Icebox, thank you. That was her name, I couldn't remember it, but it was like, wow, it's okay to be athletic and a girl, amazing. You know, and now we definitely have more advancement with, with that, with like the Women's Sports Foundation and things like that. But, you know, for people that are different, how I'm different from everybody else, where do I fit in? That's why rowing really took off for me. It, it was it was a niche that allowed me to feel like I had something in common. You know? but, but in high school, you were a standout volleyball and basketball player at, at the Covenant School in Charlottesville. But you, you know, you, you talked about kind of your struggle with your own identity. And you said for every indication of your improvement, your self-doubt made you question it. You know, looking back now, is there anything that you can pinpoint that continually led you to look at your improvement as some sort of just a one-off or not sustainable? Like a... Uh like a, a fluke, you know, yeah. Yeah. a big piece of it was, you know, I grew up just outside of Charlottesville. So I knew what it looked like. I had this image and I talk about this in the book too, this image of what it would take to be a college athlete. Like they're tall, they're this and that. And I even bring up one of the basketball players in the women's uh, basketball team at UVA. She was a six foot three guard and ran really fast. And I was a six foot half an inch center who hated running. <laughs> well, lo and behold, if you don't practice running, you won't get better at it. You know, this is true. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's like these very simple things that, okay, let's figure out how to get Lindsay to like running because that's her weakness. She doesn't like it. Maybe if, you know, coaches had had more resources at the time or understanding, you know, it seems so simple, but it really would go a long way. I mean, so, so that was, it was me comparing myself and what I thought I had externally to the image of what I thought it would have to take for me to compete, you know, outside of high school. It's like, oh, I'm at a small school. So I'm only good because it's a small school. And that was really what imprinted on me. Mm -hmm. you, you, you also said something very telling. And it's something that I think a lot of kids, particularly student athletes, struggle with. And, and I'm actually going to quote this. You said, of all the things people ever suggested to me during high school, enjoying what I chose to do was never something anyone stated outright. Give us a sense of what that statement means and how that may have affected you as you made that transition from high school into college. Yeah, I, you know, that idea, and there was a whole the story about, you know, if you're an artist, you might starve. There were, I was good at a lot of different subjects, but the ones that I really were drawn to were the more creative ones, like art and language, you know, and so then when I got to college, it was like, okay, if I'm going to leave sports behind, because what are sports realistically, because I didn't think I had the confidence to play beyond high school, it wasn't going to make money playing sports, you know, I really enjoyed them, I enjoyed my teammates. When it came to art and Spanish, I'm like, okay, I'll pursue that. But then you start to go, well, what can I actually do? Oh, what do you want to do with that? People constantly ask young people that. Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people would kept saying teacher, like as if that's all you can do if you study art and Spanish. And so then I thought, well, really, that's it? That is the, that's it? That's all I could do is I, I never really thought about, oh, what do I do after college with this particular degree that I was pursuing? And something that I, that I recognized that really resonated with me and all the coaches that I really enjoyed and all the teachers that I really enjoyed was this positive energy. Like they just really seemed to be enjoying what they were doing, you know? And I was like, that's what I want. Well, what's the gap? How do I bridge the gap between here and there? You know? And so it, I don't know that anyone ever said, you know, no one really sits down and says, what do you want to be when you grow up? They never start that with, hey, what do you really like doing? <laughs> then let me help you figure out how you can use that to get to whatever that is you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> well, 
Well, and you kind of mentioned that while you have this passion for art and Spanish and foreign language, you, you definitely, in reading the book, there was some sort of unfulfillment there. There was something missing. And, and what we end up finding out is it was that camaraderie, that, that, that sports aspect of your life. Um, you know, here at the Hall of Fame, as, as we've kind of talked back and forth getting this set up, you know, we have a sports and, and mental health initiative that we do with a local, uh, that we partner with a local children's hospital and the sports commission on. But a lot of times, many of the, the articles or the conversations tend to lead to how sports may push an athlete away. Whereas on the flip side, and I think this is a good thing because I think we really need to highlight this, sports actually brought you back and you found that support system through sports. Kind of talk about how you ended up, and we're, this is going to kind of lead us into the transition into rowing, but how did that pull you back in? Yeah, uh, a couple of things. I mean, now that I know what I know, because I have studied it, you know, had the master's in exercise physiology now, we know that physical activity improves our mental well-being, our mental health. It literally helps your brain grow. You know, eating better improves your mental health. Um, but I think, I think some of the changes, you know, for me, there's that, there's that connection, there's that human element. And I've started doing some work with the Positive Coaching Alliance too, where when you really look at it and you break it down, team sports are the sports that help. Individual sports or sports that emphasize that rock star standout athlete, like that early talent and really pushing that person we find don't actually help. And that's the beautiful thing about rowing is there are no rock star standouts. If you try to stand out in rowing, you make the whole team slower. You literally make the boat go slower if you try to do something grand in the middle of a race or in the middle of a practice. You know, I think, you know, for me, I played almost a dozen different sports growing up. You pick it, I mean, I probably played it at some point or another. And so I did not specialize. And that's a big misconception with Olympic athletes is you must be playing this sport. And that was another huge piece for why I wanted to write this and include the things that I did was I didn't specialize at a young age. I hated running even until I was <laughs> 19, 20. I didn't like running, I think, until I was 26, you know. <laughs> There's a funny story in the book. I don't want to give everything in the book away, but there is a funny story that you should read. get the book, read it. And uh, it actually kind of drove you to, to kind of where we're going now. Yeah. And you, so there are just all of these really positive things that we get from sport. And, and over the last decade of coaching that I've done, it's, it's if we start to emphasize the numbers and the data portion of it too much and forget the behavior and the human element, which I have seen happen. I don't know in your experience what you've observed, but I have started to see that is that's when we start to lose. That's when the pressure rises, you know, here's the number, here's where you stand. Okay. How do I, and that creates an a natural, very negative feedback mechanism rather than, okay, that's how much I improved today, right? Not like, oh, where to where am I ranked? Oh, you know what? I'm not a whole lap behind everybody on the track today. I'm a half a lap behind everybody on the track. So reframing how we as coaches can translate that information and we as athletes can learn how to process that information better. The moment that it, I guess it kind of all came to a head for you, uh, you were just up late at night, couldn't sleep, and in your journal, which I've, I've referenced a couple times already and, and you see throughout the book, you wrote a journal entry and in it you said, I wish I did crew. Yeah. But you had never done crew before, correct? Right, right. You, you said, I wish I did crew, and then as luck would have it, very soon after that, <laughs> you have a chance encounter with the head crew coach, head rowing coach at the University of Virginia, Kevin South. Yes. Uh, in what world is that possible? <laughs> 
in an eerily serendipitous world. You know, I, that's the old, that's the best way I can describe it because even the situation of how Kevin and I bumped into each other on that day wouldn't have happened except for a series of other domino effects, you know, other events that happened. It's, it's the whole domino effect, the butterfly effect, these tiny little things that happen that really cause a cascade of things to occur that you never know. That's why, you know, as a coach now, every single thing that I say, you know, when I take care of myself so that I am more positive and more equipped to manage stress, not because I've practiced being stressed out, no, because I've buffered my body's ability to manage stress. That allows me to be more positive because I know that everything out of my mouth, a kid is going to process. A young person is going to process. An 80-year-old that I'm coaching is going to process. And that might cause a positive or negative you know, effect down the line. But you know, it, for Kevin, he's just that kind of person. He's still the head coach at UVA. He's the only head women's rowing coach that they've had since women's rowing became an NCAA sport in the mid nineties. He is still there. I still visit him even more eerily serendipitous. He has the same birthday, same day, same year as my mother, you know? So it's like the universe was saying, Lindsay, you need to do this. <laughs> but, um, I had bumped into Kevin when I was in high school. My, my Charlottesville is a small town, not to make mm -hmm. this story, but, uh, my mom actually had cleaned his teeth. And so he knew about me. I had not met him. And then uh, he came up to me after, like when I was in high school in kind of an another chance encounter situation and said, hey, you know, if you go to UVA, think about rowing. And I laughed it off because I was like, are you a crazy person? You don't just pick up a sport in college. That's not how this works. Apparently I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Two and a half years later, after he mentioned that to me, that's that planted that seed, you know, of like, oh, rowing is an option, you know. Two and a half years later, I wake up in the middle of the night because of you know, gained 30 pounds, my grades were tanking, I was lost in college. And for some reason that popped into my brain. And, and the reason why it actually did was because I was spending time with friends who were on the swim team. And then that really go, went, oh, aha, right. I, I miss this, this teammate interaction, this part. And, uh, and that's when rowing kind of like popped up again. And I think that this book is important Particularly, you know, I think a student athlete should read it, but I also think coaches and administrators should read it because you see that sort of leadership um, that that Kevin, that your coach Kevin Sauer was able to create at the University of Virginia. Because without that being passed down to your future teammates, how would have, how would you have even been able to walk through that door on day one? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's a and we've all been there. We all have our first day at something. You're not immediately great, and I specifically say that in the book for this reason. These are a lot of the things that are in the book, these little, these little nuggets are, who was I then? What was I thinking? And how have I translated that to athletes that I've gotten to work with since? And over time, I realized that athletes would quote back to me small things that I said. And I'm like, oh, wow, they did listen to that. That does matter, you know? And, and with, with Kevin, you know, that it speaks to the whole culture because he always preaches, notice I say preaches, the value of the team. It's not about one boat or one person. It's can we win the team championship at NCAAs? Technically in women's rowing, you can win the first eight, the second eight, and the four. And the team, there's that fourth thing. And before anything else, the team title is the one that sits at the top, you know, and that's just the legacy that he's created over the years. There's that culture of, I could have walked in and every woman in that room could have been like, who's that? She's another new person like she could throw yeah, she hasn't out. put in the work she doesn't know what it takes you know here you know like or they could come in and be like oh there's someone that looks nervous because it's day one let me go introduce myself you know and, and the power of introduction 
and names is just so important in building trust and planting seeds and creating connections. You know, as a coach, learn someone's name. If you are, you know, let's say you're coaching for rowing, it's hard because you might have a hundred people or more with four coaches and that's it. And names constantly change. Imagine if you know 10 or 12 people's names and no one else's that automatically shows the entire team that only those people matter. Whether you intend for it to or not, you know, you might just have a bad memory. Do whatever you need to, make them wear name tags, write it down, get a picture book. Whatever you need to do to learn that is just the tiniest little thing that creates that big thing. Because people constantly ask, how do we motivate people? How do we build trust? Learn their name, start there. <laughs> culture, I mean, it, it comes down to culture. And that, that does start with, you know, the leadership positions and it does filter down. You know, we hear a lot about trickle down these days, but that in sports that does, if you have the right leadership, it will trickle down to the rest of the team. You know, to say with the leadership, I don't mean to interject here, but the funny thing is I hadn't seen Kevin in two and a half years mm -hmm. he remembered my name. So it wasn't just, Hey, Lindsay, or it wasn't just, Hey, you know what? You're tall. Let's row. I, I remember you, but like, remind me of your name again. He, he remembered who you were. Yes. And he, and he called me by my name and it was like, Oh, this man knows who I am. I must be special. <laughs> Well, in two and a half years, you you did do something special at UVA. You, so you started your junior year. You you did it. You did two and a half years because you did stay one year in grad school. But in that time, your ERG scores went way way down for your two K races. You got invited to the national team summer rowing camp. Uh, you guys had a lot of success at at Virginia. You were an All American. Where did you think this was all headed at this point? As you're about to end your time at Virginia, did did you have an idea that you know three years from that point? You, you might be where you were standing. That, you know, that was also something that Kevin planted the seed for. He kind of laughed at me at first, you know, and that's in the book. <laughs> but I said, hey, I want to be in the top boat. It was kind of unheard of for even him at the time to have an athlete come onto a team and within a year, literally become an All-American, you know, <laughs> literally be one of the fastest people on the team. And so he kind of was like, uh, I mean, all right, I guess it's possible. But the thing about it was that I remember sitting down and having this, conversation with Kevin, even during that goals meeting. And he mentioned the prospect of potentially staying for a year of graduate school. I still have the eligibility, you know, it hadn't expired yet. And in that moment, it was like, well, I can't afford it because I, I didn't have a scholarship, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, we finally worked out like the tiniest little bit of whatever was left at that point. Because again, usually scholarships at that time were always given in advance. You didn't have the option of retroactive. So I didn't, I was a two-time All-American and didn't have this major, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't about the money, you know, but, and so what I told him was, I, you know, I, I want to row and be the best that I can. And the best way to do that is to row with the best people. So A, that meant graduate school. So stay there, because that was my option to row at the highest level possible that I thought was available to me. After that, it was like, I mean, after I went to the national team camp, it was, that's where I want to go after college, because that's, the highest level possible. And mm -hmm. if they say no, then I guess I'll just go wherever the next level, highest level possible is. And so that's really how it was. I want to get better at rowing. The best way to do that is to row with the best people. In my mind, the national team was the best people. Having that little bit of exposure through that camp with a touch of Kevin's encouragement was like, all right, I'll ask them and see what they say. <laughs> well, you, you started training with the national team while you were in school. And then afterwards you, you continued um, talk about your first official race with the national team. Uh, the Canadian in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, we actually went up. Our coach was really good about it. He was like, if you weren't actually on the senior team for that year, so if you're not competing at the World Championships or the Olympics in a given year, then you're not technically on the national team, you know, unless you've been named. And even then, it only lasts for a certain period of time. Well, we went up there as the Mercer Lake Elite Rowing Club. You know, it, it was So it wasn't actually an official race for the U.S. national team. Okay. Right, exactly. I got we that the, detail we were, wrong. You know, we, were the, we were the novice kids, you know, we yeah. were all side and so it was my first race you know after college my first like I no longer have a college team for me to be racing for it was okay we're this we're kind of the the sandlot or the bad news bears version (laughs) (laughs) the national team at that point and when I went to Canada I um I did the I did the math and I and it was something that didn't strike me until I wrote the book was that at that point in time I was literally like number 56 on the hierarchy for as far as the national team was concerned, you know, and that was only people that we knew about, you know, so it was possible that I was even lower than that. And so my option to keep rowing was to row the single, you know, the, the coach came to me and he was like, here's your option. Do you want it? Or you, do you want to go home? And like I said, I, I wanted to stay there more than anything because it would help me be the best I could be. And so I rode the single. I was like, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do that. Thanks coach. Put me in. I mean, I'll sit in left field. I, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll in the nosebleeds in the back, changing the numbers, whatever you need me to do, you know? And, and uh, so when I went to Canada, I had never raced a 2000 meter race before. That's the traditional race distance at the Olympics um, or at every level for that matter, um, except for a couple changes here and there. Um, but when I went, <laughs> it was kind of funny because, because of the group that we were with, I had to race only championship level events, which meant that I was racing against people who had literally raced at the world championships in those events. And here I was never having raced before in my life. I had been sculling for a matter of weeks. The weather was so terrible that I nearly fell out of the boat, you know, in the, in the beginning of the race, but your aims, you know, when you go through something like that are different. I didn't go in there going like, I'm going to win this thing. I was like, I need to make it from the dock to the start line. I've never done that before, you know, and I broke it down into these manageable steps because it was the first time there was no way I could lose. As long as I made it from start to finish, it would have been the first time I had ever rode it to over 2K. And the cool thing about it was that the coach that went with us, he's now working with the Irish national team, actually. And he sent me a message not too long ago just to say, hey, thanks for throwing, putting my name in the book. Like people are reading it here, which I thought was amazing. People in Ireland are reading, which is awesome. But as he shoved me away from the dock, before this race, he looked down at me. He was like, Lindsay, you're going to get out there and they're not going to be as fast as you think they are. You know, I thought, oh, I trust you, sir. You know more about rowing than I do. You know, I think that was the beauty of starting so late too, is that I didn't have any preconceived notions. I didn't think I knew anything about the sport. So any information I had was like a cell starving, (laughs) you know, it's like whatever you can send me, I'll get, you know, and, and hold onto it. Like it's the most important thing you've ever done. And so just that tiny little bit of encouragement. He didn't tell me I was going to win. He was just like, you're probably not as slow as you think you are, <laughs> right? They aren't leaps and bounds ahead of you. So it was just such an experience to be able to do that in the first place. There was an option and it was like, all right, I, I made it back to the dock without falling in the water. How can I get a little better next time? Yeah. Well, you know, reading about that race, just having you describe the conditions that made me not want to get on the water. And I love the water. Um, but you, you talk about trust a lot. Uh, and, and a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, you went in as a novice, as a 20 year old, yeah, and you're yeah. dealing with people, your, your teammates are people who've been doing it for over a decade, even at that point. Yeah. 
um, you know, you go through the training, you continue to train with the national team year on year, and you reach a moment, though, where you say you could finally feel and hear the boat. For us non-rowers, give us an idea of, of what that means and how were you able to then take that and, and just move on exponentially with your yeah. abilities there? We, um, and, and rowing is, I don't know the rules for a lot of different sports, but you don't have that many coaches for how many athletes there usually are. So it's incredibly important, you know, to figure some things out on your own, either learn from your teammates, learn from the small boats that you're doing, learn through all of your senses. And that was something that I've always been is, you can tell I talk a lot. I'm a detail-oriented person. My dad would tell you when I'm- great. It's great for an interview. <laughs> well, that, that, that's the thing with it, is that I noticed all the small details. It's just something that I've always done. I remember them. I retain them because to me, they're important, you know? And, and which made the book an interesting thing to, to write. But being able to, to pay attention to how the water sounds, the way the boat feels. I mean, even if you don't know, you know, you, even if you've never rowed, you might've swam or you run and you fall into this rhythm that is efficient. Once you do that and find what is naturally efficient for you, you can feel the difference between day, day one and day 10, let alone year 10 of doing something. Once you get to a certain level of proficiency on your own, then the coach can give you little things. Like here's a cookie, go over there and you know, here's a ball, go play with it for a little while and see if that can be, help you a little bit more. Like, oh, if you just change your thumbs by a little bit, that'll make a big difference. So it was actually something I had started, I had found intuitively when I was in college. I remember rowing in college and the bubbles on the side of this new boat that we had gotten or were testing out, we had rented it and we're testing it, just sounded different. Like they were louder, I was more attuned to them. And so I just started to be kind of mesmerized by the way that it sounded on the side of the hull of the boat. So I started to move with it, you know, and, and it was just like, there's a rhythm here and I need to fold into that, you know, and and that again, in with the national team, for the coach to literally specifically tell me to do that, it was like, oh, that was the first time a coach said, pay attention to that and move with what the boat is doing rather than here I am doing my thing, I'm gonna make this boat go. Well, as a coach, I've, I've since phrased it, you do work, then let the boat do its work, right? And, and that self-awareness that I mentioned is something that it helps in every sport. Um, I think something that is challenging, you know, now with self-awareness is the fact that we have so many gadgets. So it's distracting. Um, so when people are very young, maybe don't use heart rate monitors, you know, maybe don't use accelerometers or speed things because now they're like, Ooh, let's look at this toy forgetting the most important foundational concepts of your body has a lot of feedback loops if you just listen to them. Two, two things that I kind of want to talk about. You, you mentioned the, the U.S. national uh, rowing team coach, Tom Terhar. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Tom Terhar. Um, you, the amount of respect you have for him is evident throughout the book. Um, but also another thing that, you, that we talked about a little bit earlier, but we'll talk about now too, is throughout the book, you, you kept talking about these self-imposed limitations. And through your training with the national team prior to be named to the Olympic team, you would see something as as a as a um, uh, as down, and where he would see it as up. And it, it wasn't until that time, that moment, where you were selected for the national team, that you really realized what his motives were and how everything that he had been asking you to do, there was a reason for it. There was there was that piece of candy over here that you had to go get. You know, just kind of talk a little bit more about his influence 
on your career and your development as a rower? You know, I mean, I start, I started at the bottom, you know, and, and he literally, and I wrote about it in the book, he literally told my college coach behind closed doors, you know, without me knowing until many years later, he told him that he didn't think it was going to work out for me because I wasn't improving in the first couple of months. It took me about five or six months of training at the national team level after being a two-time All-American, you know, like <laughs> at the collegiate level to start showing real improvement. And so he was willing to stay patient with me and allowed me, like he gave me that amount of time to go, okay, okay, now she start. I'm not going to cut her now. It's been the th only three months. Let's see what happens in a couple more. And luckily I did turn some things around, but the way that Tom always operated was in rowing, particularly when you're training now at this level is you do a lot of, you spend a ton of time training and you're doing a pretty redundant, repetitive motion. There are only so many things that a coach could say. So imagine, you know, you spend somewhere between 150 and 200 kilometers, you know, of rowing in a given week. That's a lot of strokes. <laughs> you, you, somewhere, you know, it's somewhere around at a zero or something like that in terms of the number of actual strokes that you're taking. So imagine how many things a coach would have to come up to say, come up with to say in a given week, let alone in a year, let alone in four years or eight years or 12, however long they're actually coaching you. So he would just watch and observe. And he did have this way about him where he would just kind of like turn his head to the side. Like he was dissecting, like, how can I possibly put this, you know? And, and he, how can I say the same thing, but differently this time? <laughs> so simply, you know, yeah. and, and it was almost like he had this sixth sense of mm, not yet. It's not quite done yet. It's not ready for the, uh, just a little bit extra. You know, and, and even doing something so small because he was not a very, uh, he's not a very talkative man. He's still the head coach right now. Um, when he said something small, it meant that much more, you know, something as simple as good job was actually meaningful because he meant it and didn't say it every day. If anything, I heard it twice <laughs> the first six months that I wrote. So. <laughs> But, you know, he never yelled either. And that was different than some of the basketball coaches I had had. So that really helped. Um, the fact that our very first day of practice together officially with him, when I first started uh, in September of, of 2004, which is when I first started, he helped us clean the boathouse. He helped us move stuff. You know, he wasn't like, oh, do this, do that. It goes over there. He was in it with us, teaching us small things and also doing those small things. So he for lack of a better phrase, he acted as if, right? He actually did what he was asking us to do. And so that creates a trust too. Explain and, and, and that level. Of, I was just saying that, that level of consistency too. There was a consistency in what he did that it was like, okay, he's not lying. <laughs> and that, and that's evident throughout the book and, and just reading it from, you know, year one to year two, year three, and then prepping for the Olympics. It was kind of fun to see that progression. It was consistent, but it did seem that every year as you progressed, you could see where the difference in the training was and you could see the different approaches. And, and one thing that you kept telling yourself throughout the book was the term, was the sentence, I guess, yes, more. What does that mean to you? And explain, explain that for us as well. Yeah, that was the, that was the evolution of my self-talk in racing, you know, that I just kind of found very organically. And because I discovered that if I said things like no fear, <laughs> that didn't help. It broke into two words, which was basically here I am rowing and all I'm hearing is no fear, no fear. You know, and I was thinking at the time, I'm like, oh, this is going to get me. This is the best thing ever. No fear t-shirts, right? Like the, the shirts. Well, that's, that that's old school. <laughs> yeah, like, that's what I've grown up with. No fear. Like, 
yeah, no, that doesn't help you. That gets you to a certain level. Uh, uh, two things. There is a phrase that I learned when I was in graduate school when we were talking about leadership that you can really apply to a lot of different areas. People will do what they have to for someone they fear and anything for someone they love, right? So you can get pretty far on the like, attitude, but you can get exponentially farther when you find kind of the opposite flip. So that's why when I talk about self-talk, to always use only positive terms, that no matter how dissected the, the sentence or the phrase is, every individual word has progressive positive meaning. So yes and more, you know, here's a for instance, uh, don't wait is not the same as go now, right? You, we see t-shirts that say never give up. Well, what plants, and we know this from psychology, psychological studies too, is like when it plants on your brain, particularly when you're like in the third 500 of a rowing race, we talk about marathons, 18 to 22 miles, you feel great until that point, And then poof, you hit the wall. It's three quarters of the way through, right? A mile and a half. Once you get past the midway point of whatever your distance is, that's when you're like struggling. So once you feel that way, never give up. All you're thinking is never give up, right? So, so the never is the first thing that plants on your brain, which is incredibly negative, right? And you, sometimes your brain goes out of control. So, so the idea that all that you're saying is something like yes and more, they're just positive progressive phrases that, that also, and the way that I teach it to young people too, is you have these two conflicting personalities. One that's like the central governing theory on one side that is this fancy way of saying when it hurts, human beings want to survive and stop, right? Like that's, it's a fancy way of saying it. But when you really think about it, you know, if you, do something very simple with very little space in between and you say it enough, there's no gap. So negative thought can't shoot in there. If you're just saying, yes, 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 almost like you can't breathe in between it, but you're saying it in your head, there is no way for no to zing in there. You're reciting this in your head as you guys are, as you ladies are approaching the starting line for the 2008 Olympic final. Was there any doubt what the outcome of that race was gonna be in your minds? I actually have a friend of mine brought this up just the other day is she felt that we could win um, once we hit our lengthen, which is about 400 meters into the race. So about a fifth of the way into the race, as soon as we nailed this one particular stroke that we took, that was like a shift in, in the way that we were actually rowing, just, well, not the way, but the, the rhythm of our, our race, actual pace and rate, the way that we did it was just the best that we had ever done. And she was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so for her at that moment, she was like, all right now. But I mean, for me, it was like 250 meters to go because my yes more in my brain, which was every stroke, yes, more, yes, more, every stroke down the course with 250 meters to go switched to gold. It was like, we've come this far. Like, this hurts so much, but putting my brain on the concept of gold was like, that is the only option at this point. You know, because any medal at the games, the fact that you're at the games puts you in a very tiny portion of the population in the first place. So medal puts you in the top two to 3% of that very tiny population, right? And then if you win it, you're in even a smaller subset of that population. So to actually win the game, first of all, I had to make the boat and to even think that we could win, but it really was. And then when, I cro when we crossed the finish line, <clears throat> I remember there's this bubble line 
that's how they mark it. It's not perfectly straight. They use lasers and all this other kind of stuff to mark the true race. But for the sake of us knowing where the race is kind of over, there's they literally have air coming up. So you can see a white line of bubbles. And as soon as I see, because my body is like, <laughs> like I see these bubbles go below us. And my immediate reflex was like, and I write this, the literal phrases in the book, like, one and that because I look over my shoulder to make sure no one was behind us then if no one was behind us and I had seen the finish line that meant that no one could have beaten us at that point and if the race was over because we got to the finish line first that means we won the Olympics you know so at that moment processing that literally after we crossed the finish line <laughs> that was when uh I believe we could win it <laughs> and it and it, it that that team uh, there had already been progress made. They, they won the silver at the 2004, but they have not lost a gold medal since. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, this has now become our, our sport. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I guess, I, I guess I shouldn't say that was when I believe that we could win it, that we trained every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, and even to this day, it's one of those things where it's like, really, did we do that? Who did that? How did I do that? I'm like this gangly girl from central Virginia and Rowing was not a thing when I was growing up. And I started like, how does that even happen in life? You know, and, but yeah, you know, the, the women's eight, it's like I said, it's, it's the longest, if you, depending on how you count winning streaks, some people are like, well, there were these other, for the, all the major titles, it's the longest winning streak in any sport for any gender for the world championship. And like over a long haul, it's 11 straight years of not losing worlds and, and Olympics. <clears throat> which all started in, you know, with that group of people since then, you know, and um, the, the women's aid is only one event out of 14 at the games, you know, and so the aims now are not, okay, can we win this one event? It's, can we win more events? Can we spread out the talent over different events? So uh, since I'm not currently training, I don't know what the, what the, uh, kind of strategy will be this year um like will they take those eight athletes and put them into two or three different events and see if they can at least medal in more events it's it's an interesting push-pull <laughs> I, I i should say that because uh, i haven't said it already but you were also a world champion in 2006 2007 2009 so over a four-year stretch just top of the mountain every single time um, we'll, we'll get you out of here. I got a couple more questions, but there, there were two other quotes in the book that really stuck out to me. And the first was regarding rowing full-time in preparation for the Olympics. And you said it was where you wanted to be because it was where you needed to be. And the second quote is rowing was allowing you to discover the person I was proud to become every day. Yeah. Is, is there any, any way that you could have envisioned this as you left high school becoming just an undergrad student, not student athlete? at the University of Virginia. Yeah. You know, that's another uh, really beautiful thing about sports, especially if you get the right people on board. It's all about, you know, Jim Collins, good to great, get the right people on the bus. Uh, when you go to a big school, UVA has since grown since I was there. When I was there, it was about 16,000. Then they increased the freshman class. And so now it's like 25 or something like that. I think 22,000 students returned to campus already this semester. Um, sports provide a niche. You know, they, they give you a little bit of a pool as some sort of community within the greater part. And that's a really important piece of, you know, why clubs matter, why instrument, why music matters, why, you know, what is, what is our sense of, of space within this much greater whole, you know? And, and so rowing was, because it was the community for me, it became my outlet to do that, to become better. And 
the way that I look at it is that winning the Olympics was a byproduct of that very seemingly oversimplified way of looking at it. Because that right there, if we aren't thinking and looking at it in that way, framing it that way, really teaching it that way, then every time that whatever it is that you're doing ends, then you're going to have this like, now what do I do? You know, you get, you're lost again. And so when you really think about like, what's my outlet, this current thing that I'm doing is allowing me to grow every day, right? Whether, no matter what it is that you're doing. And so for me, that has allowed the transition. Book two would be about kind of how it took me to figure this out, you know, because it didn't happen instantly. I did have anticlimactic moments. and like, what's happening now? This is weird. It's not as fulfilling as it once was. And now I'm actually getting hurt. I'd never been hurt before, you know? And, and um, so to look at it like that, that is what has helped me frame when you were talking about the mental health and all this stuff with young, young people is, is, okay, that section, that outlet, has now changed for me. What's the next, what's my outlet now? Like, how can I continue to grow every day? You know, wake up every morning. And, and when you really think about it, if you, you can always break down your lifestyle habits as that thing, just to literally be physically better as a human being. Can I sleep a little better today? It'll help your mood. Can I eat more fruits and vegetables today? That'll help your mood. You know, that's all part of that, you know. Well, I, I will say, having read the book, I would hold the book up, but I read it digitally. Um, but I, I will say, I recommend everybody get the book Better Great Than Never. Uh, by, there, she, there it is right there. Of course, she has a copy. Um, yeah, Lindsay, I, you, already, you kind of already teased the book too as well. So maybe we'll, we'll do this again <laughs> another time. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but Lindsay, it, it, it's been a, been a pleasure catching up with you today. Um, the story is, is amazing. And I just, I've been trying to rack my brain trying to figure out, is there a comp? in another sport for a story like this, where it's, you know, junior year of college, I'm gonna pick this sport up and then oh, less than seven years later, standing atop a medal podium. And if there is one, I haven't been able to find it yet. I'm sure there are some out there, but they're not easy to find. So. You know, I, love, I love that you said, you know, administrators, coaches, young people. I had, a, I was speaking to a teacher yesterday and she said, have you thought about writing a curriculum for this? You know, because there really are just so many lessons in here. And, and uh, someone that reviewed the book actually in a, in a rowing magazine, he said, you know, I don't know if she did it on purpose. And I was like, yes, I did it on purpose. You know, it's <laughs> what we did that was so unique during the time frame that I did train and a huge piece of it that we didn't, didn't get to talk about. I don't, you know, um, was that the way that we interacted with one another as teammates, you know, mm -hmm. we were silly and played pranks on one another. And, you know, and there was that levity to it because we loved rowing. It was really hard. So having that decompression was also so important. It took off some of the pressure, you know, it, and it really was, it was, we were doing it because we knew why we were doing it. We had a purpose for me. It was, I want to get better every day at this thing, you know, and, and enjoy it. And that was really going back to your question earlier of like, and that also might be when, when sports start to start to compress our mental health. Are we enjoying it? If we're not mm -hmm. doing it for the pure enjoyment, if we're doing it because it's going to get us into college, if we're going to, if we're doing it because I was told that I was good at it when I was young and now I don't, you know, find the why behind it, you know, like what is it? Why are you doing it? How is it helping you be better as a human being? And that is, at least in my personal opinion, is what can transcend, you know, some of the anxiety that we're starting to see in people in sports. And, and I, I, I would go back to just having that support system within that sports bubble. And yeah. I think that, that that became so apparent in reading the book is that you had it. 
you know, and, and if you would have transitioned, at least from reading it, if you would have transitioned to a team that didn't have that, I don't know how this would have turned out for you. Yeah. Um, and and it, it might not have turned out if it's well for you. Look for book two. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that tease. Well, Lindsay, I, as, I, as I said, it's a pleasure catching up with you today, hearing about your journey, learning more about the book. Um, you can get the book, Better Great Than Never, anywhere books are sold. I got mine on Amazon, but I'm sure Barnes & Noble has it. It's a great read. Certainly recommend it. Thank you so much for taking the time out today. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Well, I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in. Uh, I did see a few of you pop up on the stream. Um, and as always, thanks to our partners, the City of Virginia Beach, Priority Automotive, DAVCON, Optima Health, ESPN Radio, and of course, our friends at the Hampton Road Sports Commission. Be sure to follow the Hall of Fame on all of our social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. This video will be up there, so you'll be able to see it. We'll also cut up some clips for you uh, moving forward here in a few days. Um, once again, I'm Will Driscoll with the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. And whatever you do, Participate, don't spectate.